Hello there, you the listener, wherever you are in the world. This is Citizen Reporter number 420 for the 7th of May, 2012. It's an interview from my house with a dear friend who does quite interesting work in this world. Hi everyone, this is Mark Fonseca Rendeiro with you. I am here in Amsterdam again, and I have the pleasure of sitting across from one Brian Connolly, also known as Baghdad Brian on the internet. Welcome back to my house, Brian. Thanks, Mark. Always glad to be here. Yes, and in this particular case, you uh, are on your way, and we can really say that now because it's, it's, it's the eve before <laughs> you, you head off to, to Libya. And what I wanted to do, because coincidentally, it's also the anniversary of not only the Libyan revolution, uh, I mean, we're a month or two off, but it is basically one year since, and it's also one year since you were there, um, and, and I want to get into that. So the purpose eight, of today, eight or nine months, the purpose of today will be to go back in time first, before anything else. Um, people will remember you, uh, especially the, the long-term listeners, from sitting on that rooftop uh, in, in Kabul. Uh, that's definitely the one I remember you on my podcast for. And uh, that was Afghanistan. Uh, there have been other places uh, before that and perhaps even since then. But how did your, not only your interest, but your eventual being on the ground in Libya, how did that even start? Yeah, well, you know, we, we did way, way back, we did that, that Alive in Baghdad thing a long time ago. And we've always been sort of struggling to, like, figure out how to get back to that space, but, like, in a way that's smarter and grown up and, like, thinking about more about sustainability and impact. For people who didn't know it, that space, Alive in Baghdad, I mean, how would it, what was it and what would it be for Libya? Yeah, it was a weekly news and documentary program about life in Iraq produced by Iraqi filmmakers and journalists. And, you know, with the with the new rise of mobile and the availability of video cameras and small camcorders, we wanted to think about, well, what if we could take 10 cameras to Libya and just do like some really basic training, but just make it so like anybody really now has the tool and we'll do all the sorting. But like, in fact, they actually did the editing. Yeah. You know, so originally when we went to Libya, we were thinking, okay, well, we'll just teach them to shoot decent video, like short clips, interviews, and little snippets of life, and then write a little bit of text about them, and we'll put them almost like a newspaper article with a photo, but the photo is, is alive, and you can click on it and play yeah. something. Yeah. But they really wanted to do more, and they actually, I left a laptop with them. Actually, I sent a laptop back to them, and they kind of taught themselves to edit video, and, you know, just started making videos. And they were doing two, three a week, usually. Yeah. And uh, they made about 200 videos over six months. I mean, 
before any of that, you're yeah. doing this in a very unique political and social climate. Uh, you're going to Libya when Gaddafi is still, I'm going to say, in charge of parts of it. And yeah. this uprising inspired by the Arab Spring uh, is going on. And so for you, that means you can't go everywhere. But yet you started, you, you found the starting point. I mean, how did that go? What would tell us about the starting point? Yeah, well, so the the original starting point, right, was uh, was Egypt. The Egypt Revolution was happening. I, you know, just come back from Afghanistan again. I was in Afghanistan at the beginning of last year, trying to figure out what we were going to do next. You know, in two thousand and ten, we were all in Afghanistan together and trying to see if there was some space or some some project for Small World News. And I came back, and this little uh, Egyptian Revolution thing was going on. And I was actually in the middle of driving across the United States, moving from my family's place in Florida to our new home in Portland, Oregon. And the, uh, you know, I was talking to my, some of my colleagues. I don't think I talked to you about it, but I mean, some of the other guys, small, just like, what can we do? We should do something to like help out the Egyptians. And then the internet got turned off <laughs> and we thought, oh, well, let's, you know, what if we set up like a phone calling service like we did with, uh, with uh, Gaza in 2009 and also later, not as successfully, but a little bit in Iran also during the election stuff. And we were thinking about that, and they were like, hey, well, Dropio doesn't exist anymore. What's the best service? How do we do it? And then we saw Google started this thing called Speak to Tweet. And that was essentially a service to somebody who could call a phone, a phone number, leave a message, hang up, and the audio would be encoded, posted online, and tweeted. Hmm. Cool, great, except most people don't listen to Arab, to don't speak Arabic. Twitter's only is not really well archived or indexed. So we, st we took it on ourselves to ra find the translators, organize all the information, and that became alive in Egypt. And the plan was, okay, this will be our start. This will be a, get us some initiative. And then once Mubarak fell, we'll go back to Libya. I mean, back to, we'll go to Egypt, and we'll kind of combine alive in Baghdad with the stuff we've been doing in Afghanistan last year on election monitoring, election journalism, and we'll create like a new sort of little news agency that would do video storytelling about the election. So the, I mean, the, the stories, the personal stories of everyday life in that current reality, but also the, the tweets, uh, which at that time, you know, was still, at least in that context, a new idea. I don't know if everybody realizes, but to be able to, you know, read a tweet from uh, someone on the streets of in Tahrir, for example, in Egypt, uh, you would get something besides, although you could also get what's for dinner, um, but you would get details about the, the reality there. Yeah. yeah. So you, you set this up. Uh, this was the starting point, Egypt, in fact. Yeah. yeah, and we were planning to go to Egypt, and we were going to do more development. And we, we were like, okay, that's our little initial starting project, but we're going to build on it, and we're, we're going to keep focused. We're going to start building something. We're going to stick with it. Then the funders were all like, well, you know, that sounds cool, but like they really got a problem next door in that, that other country in that, that Libya there. Maybe you could go do that in Libya. What do, what do you think? And, you know, unfortunately, you know, this is the kind of world that we live in that to a certain degree, you do have to kind of go where the funder, you know, is willing to support you to go. I never knew anything about Libya. I never thought about going to Libya. Yeah. You know, I never, which is so funny, right? Because when I did Alive in Baghdad, I spent a year preparing to go to Iraq. And I'd wanted to go to Iraq for like 10, since I was like 10. <laughs> you know, I've always been interested in Iraq. And, uh, but with Libya, it was just like, we had to like quickly start like learning what was going on and what was the space. And, you know, all these sort of weird connections happened. Um, 
you know, I know a guy from uh, Global Voices who knows me from Alive in Baghdad way back. And, you know, he said, I, I think I know some people. You want to go to Libya? I think I know some people. And then, you know, a couple days later, he calls me and he says, yeah, I got to introduce you to this guy. He's a, he's a Libyan dentist who lives like, you know, in Somerville or he lives in Revere or somewhere outside Boston. Okay, so I call that guy, and he's like, yeah, this is my brother's number. When you get to Benghazi, you have to call him. He'll take care of you. The dentist gets yeah. you the connect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but um, I actually never called his brother. You know, I, that, that never really, it just didn't go anywhere, because by the time I got there, I already had a bunch more contacts, mm -hmm. which was this other guy, this, uh, this guy, Libyan guy who was going to Stanford. He was there for, like, the Sloan School of Business. Yeah. And he was there just for like the business, like the mid-career business guys, like master's program. But at Stanford, they have this liberation technology department and they have all this stuff where they look at emerging technology and internet communication stuff. And, and then also how it like changes the world and like creates disruption and whatnot. And so he emailed this guy who was the professor in that department. And he was like, I need to find out more about this and I need to find out about secure cell phones and satellites and like yeah. blah 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 and so that guy pushed him to to nasser who is the you know the global voices guy and he says to me hey yeah you should talk to this guy and that was the connection so that connection uh you know so it's funny right because you're talking about like harvard and because uh, that's the thing is, is the the dentist i think also went to harvard or there was an Egyptian guy he met at a protest who was a Harvard professor. Yeah. So literally it was like the Ivy League, like Arab American sort of like yeah. Illuminati in a certain way, right? And uh, so, yeah, so so the guy at um, at Stanford connected me to his, his brother-in-law because he had married into this family, the Bugagis family, which if you've done much looking into like the early part of the Libyan revolution, they were a big mover. You know, they were one of the big movers and sort of well-known, kind of like if you look at Iraq, if you know the Iraqi blogger scene or any of that kind of stuff, the Gerard family is like sort of well-known, you know, like right. uh, Raed, exactly. Uh, so they were kind of like that, but for Libya. And so, so Sammy, you know, he was like, okay, tell me when you're coming. I'll get someone to pick you up in Alexandria and drive you straight to Benghazi. And like, you know, I was like, that's crazy. And then this other guy, the Harvard professor, his family are Aulad Ali. And the Aulad Ali are this uh, sort of tribe known for being smugglers and like existing across like Libya and Egyptian, like across that border there, right? Mm -hmm. And so they, you know, they found some other professor, friend of his, somebody he'd gone to school with. I think in the U.S., but had, this guy had gone back to Cairo and was, like, teaching at Cairo University. Random, he just picks me up at the airport. Yeah. You know, it was very, very much kind of like American uh, protester culture, how it works. Like, you just, you know, you, you call your body and they help you and they just get you. And you're like, okay, somebody new comes down. You, dude. But this guy, like, he picked us up at the airport, took us to meet another guy who drove three hours from Alexandria to pick us up and drove us to Alexandria to his bro other brother's house yeah. where we chilled for a couple of days. And then, uh, you know, the Libyan guy picked us up and drove us 14 hours from Alexandria to Benghazi yeah. just because his other Libyan family asked. And I'm pretty sure they, I'm sure they paid him. Mm -hmm. But like he was just hanging out waiting for us to drive literally 14 hours across the like North Egyptian and Libyan like, you know, backwoods. Yeah. And, and at that time, you're in the car 14 hours. You know you're going to Benghazi. What do you know about Benghazi? I mean, what have you learned in that time? Because I also remember around, you know, when Libyan sort of Arab Spring broke out, 
I found myself uh, uh, sort of quickly reading about Benghazi and what's the difference between a Benghazi and a Tripoli. But right. and, and even though some people now that name has become more familiar, I want to go back to what you knew at that time. <laughs> Not a lot, you know, not much. I mean, I, I, I had read, I was reading um, a history of modern, a modern hi- history of modern Libya, which is like the book. It's like the, in fact, it's like the only book really that had been written in English about Libya and Libyan like politics and history. And there'd been a few other kind of like more pulpy books, like in the same way about Iraq, there's like sort of like simple books written about Iraq. There's a few of those like Gaddafi's a crazy man. And like, how did the crazy man come to power? Like, you know, but the only real like academic text is this one book by Dirk Van de Waal. So I read that and I kind of started to get this idea of like, it would look like a sort of Mussolini era, like Italian, like colonial sort of space. And that is, that's really how it looked, you know? But I didn't realize how much there was also like spread and like in the center part of Benghazi, it really does look like, you know, turn of the century, uh, early 20th century kind of like colonial and 1800s, early 1900s colonial architecture, right? But then outside, it just becomes like the same sort of like cement block Soviet like utilitarian infrastructure, but then with like walls for like to like create the like Islamic sort of traditional courtyard like you have a wall or in your house to like you know and it's very interesting and and a place that i don't think only then became quite independent from from tripoli the central government i mean it seems like and that's where i'm also curious this place was already on its own to some extent this benghazi this what is what the east yes. of the country well but I, but i didn't know that then <laughs> right and i was um you know, I was reading uh, Hisham Matter's book, uh, uh, "Country in the Country of Men," something like that, which is the other name for Libya. It's kind of like the Country of Men. I don't know why, but that's, you know, um, and it was, it was interesting. You know, and you kind of like do this thing where you read about a place. And it was, I'm pretty sure it all took place in Tripoli, mm-hmm. but like I just sort of projected on thinking that like Benghazi would be like that, you know, and. And it was kind of, and in fact, actually, when I was reading that book, since I've never been to Tripoli, now I read that book and I think about Benghazi, right? And I wonder, like, if I read it again after I go to Tripoli, will I have a different kind of architecture and streets and that kind of thing? But, you know, when when I got there, when I got to Benghazi, all I knew was that, you know, the town had been liberated and there had been this sort of, like, pitched battle that had gone on, but then very quickly Gaddafi's forces had kind of like faded into the into the sunset or disappeared or even left the city. Mm-hmm. And there was still, we knew there was still fighting going on because there was um, in Ajdabia and in Brega, which is to the south, sort of southwest of Benghazi, down around the coast. Like if you look at a map of Libya, there's this kind of like big bowl, right, in the middle of the country where there's like a huge sort of bay. And, but going down towards that way, the, the rebels had been pushing and trying to kind of take the oil uh, refinery and like distribution centers there. But they never really got that area. And in fact, they, they were still sort of like a lot of heated battles going on there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, as much as I kind of wanted to see it and wanted to document it and felt that like enough of images were not coming out and good enough images weren't coming out, I've always felt like that's not my role. You know, my role You're is not to a like. Reporter. No, no, I, I'm, I'm more of like a frontline editor-in-chief you know like i want to like be there to help other people 
you know, help my like sort of fellow like local journalists produce better content, understand how to tell stories, start to get why things look a certain way on Al Jazeera or CNN and why their videos don't look like what the CNN guys are getting, for example. But so in terms of your goal, which was to help set up, uh, you know, these sort of citizen media projects, if I can use that term, um, what did you find existed when you got there? Because what I always thought was there had been heavy control of media to begin with. So if there was a newspaper, there was one or two, and it was all top down from the central mm -hmm. government. So I pictured a lot of people who had never worked in media before, but I'm sort of wondering who were you working with and what were you making? What were they making? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, let's, let's, let's not forget to come back to the, uh, the newspapers and top down thing that from, from Western Libya, I have a funny story about that later okay. for later, but in but Benghazi, in Benghazi uh, you know, I found myself working with English teachers, uh -huh. guys who had been, you know, men and women. In fact, actually, I think it was, it was a slight majority of women in the trainees, which is kind of interesting in itself. Right. Uh, but they were people who had been doing, working at this, uh, success school or the success Institute, which was a sort of state department funded sort of project, you know, got some funding from state department to teach English. Right. And, mm -hmm. and it was all through Gaddafi understood it. And this, remember, this is also, you know, just a few years ago was the time when Gaddafi was like coming out of the cold and everyone was like re-engaging with Libya, blah, blah, blah. But so, yeah, so I met these guys and um, it's actually kind of a funny story how I met them. So when Sam, when I met Sammy, you know, so the, the guy who, who brought us, um, you know, he brought us straight to Sammy's house and we saw Sammy and we had lunch and hung out with him, met some of his family. And then he took us to the, uh, to the media center, you know, which is, was the Benghazi media center, media center on the, uh, on the Corniche and the Corniche kind of became the Tahrir of Benghazi, right? So he was there and he introduced to a few people and basically Sammy was a super busy guy. Like he was way too involved in like too many elements of the revolution and managing stuff, whatever. And um, so he wanted to like find some people who could work with me, who he knew he could trust, but like would have more time to kind of assist me. Mm -hmm. And so we met these guys, um, Marwan Garagum mm -hmm. and uh, Suraj Zubi. Mm -hmm. And Suraj Zubi was like really smart guy older you know definitely like you know probably around the same age as, as us like you know late 20s early maybe you know early 30s maybe late 20s mm -hmm. and you know he was just kind of like he was a guy who was like connecting people is, and is he older than most people at this point yeah, yeah yeah no definitely definitely so when we say like like he was like 28 to like 32 most of the people you'd see around the revolutionary media center and just in general in libya are I think the majority is under 30, under 25, I think. Mm -hmm. It's a very like, young country, like so many of the countries in these areas, right? And uh, But the other guy, Marwan, I didn't realize this at the time, was actually like the up-and-coming Libyan rock star. And his band, Guys Underground, is, is essentially <laughs> the name. only uh, rock band in Libya. And, uh, you know, he told me a story once that, like, yeah, we're the only rock band in Libya. And, you know, it's there's no drummers. There's no drummers in Libya, at least not in Benghazi. No no classical rock drummers. You know, no, like, no, no like, like, real rock drummers. So, yeah, our drummer, and I can't remember the guy's name, unfortunately, but he's like, our drummer is a 50-year-old guy from Sudan. He's the only guy. He's the only guy who knows how to play, like, rock drums in Libya. So every time they have a show, it's like these dudes who are, like, 
18 to like 22 and they're like 50 something year old drummers totally yeah. hilarious yeah. um but marwan you know yeah I, I didn't realize at the time he was just a guy who like knew a guy and so he introduced me and you know his brother or his cousin's brother knew this other guy um Mohammed Kablan and Mohammed Kablan wow talk about a, a guy who was like dressing the part you know he had kind of a very Che Guevara like goatee and his hair was like a little bit long but not too long yeah. you know very much and like and he had the he had the little revolutionary beret uh camo field jacket totally was like a, a Che Guevara like mm-hmm. he was like you know dressing the image of what he imagined you know yeah, you yeah. could tell right and there was a lot of that but he was like yeah. he took it a little farther than some other guys <laughs> and so we started we met some some Libyan guys and we started working with them and then um you know one or two days later and I didn't really see Siraj after that you know like I was working with Marwan and I we had things going on so I had yeah. you know it, that seems to happen a lot though kind of yeah. like not dominoes but like one person connects you to another person. They may stick with you, but they may also go back to whatever it was that they were doing. Yeah. So you you seem to move forward or further in the chain. Yeah, and you always try to keep in your pocket. You remember, like, what was the thing that got me to here in case that this doesn't work? But well, we're just going to keep <laughs> moving with the one. flow, you know? Yeah. Um, but then one day, uh, we met this other guy, Ahmed. And Ahmed was a blogger under Gaddafi. And the thing about blogging under Gaddafi was that it was almost all sort of, like, music and cultural blogging like that, that was, was the okay. thing like politics was not allowed to be discussed right uh but so he had run a music blog and when the war, war started he was like oh well maybe i should start like a journalism blog and a video you need a camera and he was trying to make a video blog basically so we started working with him giving some pointers and whatnot and he you know got this connection to go interview some fighters who'd been in ajdabia you know which we were talking about before down on the front where the, a lot of the heavy fighting was still happening and so we're like, cool, cool, yeah, go do it. And, you know, gave him some pointers about questions and stuff. And he went and interviewed those guys. And um, he got arrested mm-hmm. by the revolutionaries. And eventually they let him go. But they said, you know, you have to have a media badge. You can't just be filming. You have to have, you have to be approved by the revolutionaries. We don't know who you are otherwise, blah, blah, blah. So the next day we were like, okay, Ahmed. And like we called a bunch of people and we were like, guys, like, you know who we are. We came and told you what we're doing. Like, you can't just be saying that, you can't film unless you're allowed. These are like young guys, you know, it's like... But it seems almost impossible to enforce these yeah, kind yeah. of standards anyway because you don't know what group you're running into and right. how loyal they are to right. whatever program there is. So yeah. so at any time, you could be accused of not being approved. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. So, but we, you know, we got, a, we talked to Jalal Galal, who was running the media center at the Uzu Hotel. Mm-hmm. So there was kind of two media centers. There's one media center, which was more about supporting the foreign press and accessing them and getting them translators and fixers and stuff. And there was the other media center which was really more about revolutionary propaganda and, like, revolutionary media. But where you'd also see, like, the younger freelance journalists were kind of hanging out around there and, like, other, like, like foreign journalists, right? Huh. They sort of hung out there where it's, like, the old school, like, the older, more mainstream they were like doing their stand-ups and like filing their pieces from the hotel. And, like they would go out. But, but what know. about the Libyans, the Libyan wannabe journalists? You mentioned one now, a blogger. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so, so this, yeah. So we, you know, we went the next day to go meet Mohammed Kablan, and you know, we brought. We said, Ahmed, come on, Marwan, come along, let's do this. And um, you know, we were talking to him, and and Mohammed Kablan was like, I don't know you. Who are you? And I'm like, 
you met me two days ago with this guy. This guy. He's like, okay, yeah, but I don't know this guy. He's talking to the Libyan guy. I don't know Ahmed. Like, who is he? Maybe he works for Gaddafi. You think that he's good, but we don't know. I don't know him. Blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh, man, this is a big mess. And then I remember I had seen, because like, I realized, I had realized like the night before when, when Ahmed got in trouble that I didn't have Siraj Zubi's phone number. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that was a mistake. I gotta, you always got to remember to get the phone numbers because you never know what, when you're going to need them. Uh, otherwise, you might never see a person again. They could be just down the street, but, you know. Yeah. If you don't have the mobile phone number, you, you, you got nothing. And uh, I remembered when I came in the stairs, when I came up the stairs in the media center, there's this big poster that says, journalists, if you need a translator, call Siraj. Mm-hmm. And now, I, I've been to a few Middle Eastern countries, half a dozen, maybe more by this point. I worked on Iraq stuff for years. I'd never heard the name Siraj. Mm-hmm. So I was pretty sure that Siraj is not a very common name. So it could be him. Yeah, so it's like, oh, that must be his number. Because also, he'd been kind of doing that. Like, that was kind of his responsibility, was to help journalists sort of figure out what they were doing and get fixers and sort of get what they needed. So I called him. And Siraj is like, yeah, yeah, I'll be there in five, ten minutes. Don't worry. I, I got it. I got it. I'll be there. And I was like, okay, okay cool. And um, by this point, Mohammed Kablan realizes that he knows Marwan, and Marwan went to high school with, with uh, Ahmed, so it's okay, and he's vetted as not being a Gaddafi spy <laughs> because I know somebody's brother who knows his brother, you know. And so he gets his badge. But then we get a phone call, and Siraj, Siraj is like, hey, I'm here, what's going on? I'm like, yeah, we're in this place, whatever. And I walk out to the hallway, because there's these big, long hallways. Oh, I forgot to mention, the media center was actually set up in the... Uh, husk of the the burned out husk of the old police station okay which is like i think also sort of like very like mm-hmm. sort of post-soviet post like authoritarian state kind of idea right as you often like you liberate the most like feared space and then like use you it. know use it and so i walked down the hallway and i'm on the phone and I'm, like, and I'm like i see a guy on the phone and he's saying and i realize it's, it's he's saying the same thing i'm hearing in my ear and i'm like that that's not Siraj. <laughs> who, who is this guy? And uh, we get talking, and his name is also Siraj. Yeah. And uh, since then I've met, and then uh, he was working with another guy who was also named Siraj. And at this point I learned that for whatever reason, Siraj is like a very common name in Libya, although yeah. not many other places. Yeah. You know, it's funny because like like in, in you know, Muslim countries, like, there's a lot of the same names are used, right? Because it's all about, like, names of Allah and all this kind of thing. And Siraj, I guess, means it's a certain kind of light. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a, there's a lot of things about Arabic century. There's, like, there's a word for morning light and sunlight and just light and, like, you know, all these, like, they're very, like, specific terms. So they're light, yeah. Yeah. So Siraj is some kind of light. Uh, and I guess if you live in, like, a desert country or mountainous, like, you have all kinds of different light during the day and whatever. <laughs> you know, you notice those things. But um, I started talking to Siraj, and he's like, well, who are you? Like, what are you doing here? And I was like, well, I'm here to train journalists and hoping to, like, find Libyan, young Libyans who want to learn to be filmmakers. I've got some cameras, and we're doing something. And Siraj is like, wow, that's great, man, because I just came for a meeting with, like, you know, 10 colleagues that would all want to do documentary. And we've been talking about it. Like, how can we make a documentary about what's going on in Benghazi? But we don't even know where to start. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, like, after about two, three days in Libya trying to figure out finding like one person here or there i suddenly had like a whole class worth of people who wanted to learn and wanted to produce video yeah and uh and we found out that actually one of the trainees actually was the woman who shot one of the most famous clips of video 
from the Benghazi, like the initial Benghazi uprising, which was this video shot from a, a house, like a second or third story window of the street or the alleyway and these uh, mercenaries with like with yellow helmets coming and like people like fighting them on the streets and like chasing and trying to like get in people's houses and like, you know, catch like different like rebels and protesters. And it's very funny, you know, and it was quite a decent piece of video, you know, and uh, with that she had no knowledge, right? Right. And so from there, we, you know, we just started doing workshops every day, talking about the basics, talking about how to like, what's composition, what are five different shots, how do you string shots together, mm-hmm. just step by step. And, you know, at the same time, uh, things are not going well in Ajdabia. Mm-hmm. You know, like the rebels are losing a lot of ground. Uh, you know, the tanks are getting closer. And we're kind of, we're all kind of wondering, like, you know, is this Paris Commune? Like, what's, are we, are we just waiting? I remember this time as well, uh, both you and Louis uh, in, in Benghazi, and the conversations were, are we staying here? Or I, we're asking you if you're staying yeah. there. And it was very unclear if you should or not. Um, yeah. yeah, no, and it's, it's sort of, it seems like a sort of classical Libyan thing, because now it's, it's happened many times that I find myself in sort of like a limbo or stasis within, with relation to Libya. Like, am I going? Am I leaving? Am I returning? Am I not? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, it was this kind of thing where it was, it was just very hard to tell what was going to happen. And, um, you know, it was like one or two nights before the um, the security the Security Council. Council vote. All the journalists left. Not all of them, but like, but like half of the journalists or a third of the journalists were all like, "We're pegging up. We're, we gotta, we gotta go back to Tobruk." Because and you know, so within in Libya, you know, there's this big sort of curving coastline, mm. and, and Tobruk is the next big town from the border, right? It's about four hours from Benghazi. But the thing about Tobruk is that there's two ways to get there. From Benghazi, you can go on this kind of curving coastal road that's maybe about four and a half hours. But if you're lower than Benghazi, there's actually a big highway that goes straight to Tobruk. Mm -hmm. It maybe takes two, three hours. And so this big fear that people start to have was like, well, if there really is a tank column there, and if Gaddafi really is like moving these many troops... If he wanted to, he could very easily just cut off the retreat. I mean, they could they could speed ahead. Once they got that that road clear, they could speed ahead and grab the 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 border post, and then all the journalists would be really screwed, you yeah. know. Because you know, Gaddafi's people have been very clear. I mean, safe Gaddafi said, you know, that uh, any journalist who's here without a visa will be considered a terrorist and is here illegally and is supporting the, you know, terrorist uprising. By that definition, you're a terrorist and most of the people you're working with at that point. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, you know, there was a lot of talk about, oh, well, we've got a backup plan and maybe there'll be a fishing boat in the harbor and we'll go out of the harbor to Malta if, like, we get, if the road gets cut off. And lots of it, you're just kind of like, well, that doesn't really make any sense, but okay. Uh, but, you know, at, at the same time, it just didn't feel... I wasn't done, you know, like we had more training to do and we had more work to do and, and it seemed like we were getting there, but I know that also like, I would say probably from, from Louis and especially from Steve and Eowyn and maybe your, like people's perspective from outside, it was like, it, Brian's not being realistic and he's just kind of like making things up as he goes and like, what do you mean? oh, I just think people would, would say like, well, cause I, cause I was always saying like, I have one more thing I got to do. I got this other thing. I got this other thing. And they were hearing, you know, that Gaddafi's forces were, like, encroaching. And there would be, like, stuff on the BBC that would be, like, yeah, yeah. the city is being shelled. Oh, right. And it was, like, no. You know, and the thing is, I'm sitting in the hotel where the BBC's security guy 
is getting on the phone to London and saying, what are you people talking about? It's totally fine. Just because you heard like a rumor on Twitter or like, you know, one. Yeah. You know. That's how it used to happen in Afghanistan as well. You know, one one story from one part of Kabul would be the whole story. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yep. Um, but the one more things that you wanted to do, I mean, these were related to what? Training more journalists. Training, training more journalists. <laughs> Also trying to, you know, to meet with some activists and talk to them about some of the communication stuff they could be doing better. Um, yeah. But mostly training the journalists, mostly trying to get them like through reevaluating their projects, seeing what work they're doing, you know, and encouraging them to grow. And, uh, you know, by the end, I think we only actually spent four or five days working with these guys and not full days either. Mm. Right. Because, uh, but so then, so then the Security Council voted and they approved the no fly zone. And that night, all the journalists were coming back. This is the 18th, right? Mm -hmm. And the next day, and we were, and we, and when that happened, we were like, okay, great, it's gonna be awesome, everything's fine, you know, cool, we're gonna be here for another five days and then we're gonna go home because that was the length of our trip. Yeah. Um, this is just an experiment to see what, what we could do and see what sticks, you know. Um, and that morning, all hell broke loose. You know, there was a uh, gunfire, massive amounts of gun f of AT aircraft fire and loud. And then I, I heard the jets mm -hmm. over the ho the hotel. And that's when I was like, oh God, something, right. something bad. You know, and I ran downstairs and there was a um, huge plume of smoke off the distance. Like a, a big enough one that you're like, that's, something. that's, that's something and not something small, right. you know, and, and a plane had, had crashed or been shot down, right? I remember the video, yeah. Yeah, and then that's when we were getting the reports that, like, there were, like, tanks coming up the road and they were, like, shelling the hotel. And the interesting thing is, like, I never noticed any shells falling, but there was a hotel behind our hotel where somebody had photos of shells that been, I didn't believe, and he like showed them. And I was like, oh, yep, that's those those are busted out windows. That is a shell. And so, you know, we're like, okay, we 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 could say we we got shelled. We were being <laughs> shelled, you know, because right. it was like they went over. It was like, all right, yeah. Um, and we're like, what are we gonna do, you know? And and what are we doing? And um, this guy, Dan, this Christian Science Monitor guy, you know, he went out with with somebody, um to sort of see what was going on. And I think less than five or 10 minutes later, he was back telling us he was getting shot at and that there was like a battle, like just down, like close enough that within 10 minutes he left, came back, was all freaked out and went upstairs to his room to start packing. Yeah. So close, right? Yeah. And then, um, one of the uh, the women from the Bugagis family, remember mm -hmm. we talked about them before, Iman, I think Iman Bugagis, I think, shows up and was like, everyone has to leave. Like, the Gaddafi's guys are coming, and they're going to, they could be here any minute, and you have to go. And that was, you know, by this point, I had woken up Louie, and it was pretty much like, we, we probably need to go. Or I think Louie was upstairs awake, just trying to, like, like mm -hmm. figure out what the hell is going on, right? Yeah. And, um... And then Haitham showed up. Haitham was one of our one of our guys from from Libya. You know, who's he was never a trainee, but he was just like, he was actually sort of the manager for uh, guys underground, <laughs> such as so much to the degree that they had one. 
And you know, here's another one. He's like slightly. It all comes back to a rock band, you know, a rock band in Libya. Yeah. It it all comes back to a rock band. <laughs> and he showed up and he's like, "What do you guys want to do? We got to decide because like if you need me to go with you and, and drive you out of town, like we can do that. But like, but we also knew like Haitham had a family, right? And his dad, either his dad was in China, and then I think his Siraj dad was in China. Haitham's dad is dead, I think, or mm-hmm. or, or was like a really old man, or or, or mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so he was like, he's like the guy taking care of his mom and like his younger siblings and stuff. So like, we didn't want to put that on him, but we also knew we need to get the hell out. Right. And what happened? So we, we got in a car with him and he drove us. And also the BBC guys were like all, we were all crammed in the car, like me and Louie and the BBC cameraman and Ian, Ian something or other, who's like sort of like more well-known, like BBC personality guy. And, uh, mm-hmm. I will say that I it was not one of my finer moments. I I got I freaked out for a little bit for a minute, mm-hmm. and I uh, was was not was not as uh, courteous as I could have been at that time. <laughs> but we all got in the car and we were driving and we we're like, okay, we're gonna go to the Neuron Hotel because uh, we got to get out of this hotel. But we're pretty sure like things are gonna be fine. And we got to the Neuron Hotel. And the Neuron Hotel was like, can't come in, can't stop. You gotta keep, you can't stay here. You gotta keep going. Mm-hmm. And that was when we realized that. The BBC security guy, who is the guy who supposedly had the backup plan all worked out, mm-hmm. really was asleep at the wheel. Yeah. You know, the fishing boat that was supposed to be in the harbor, <laughs> not around. Yeah. The 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 two vans that he supposedly had arranged just in case they never showed up. One of the guys from CNN, maybe, yeah. or maybe one of the uh, I don't know some some other journalist flagged down a truck driving by and thankfully this was a guy who was like a very much like Benghazi dude like pro-revolution good guy and was like you're right you guys are effed get in the truck <laughs> yeah so we all got in the truck and there was like 10 20 of us yeah. driving like out of Benghazi in the back of this pickup truck yeah and uh it was quite a crazy experience yeah but um and so eventually you actually return. That's that's the amazing thing. You actually yeah. return to Libya. Um, and at that time... Well, there's, the, the first amazing thing, we should say. So when we left, we're on the back of the truck, and Louie and I were talking, and we're like, well, you know, we did it. There it was. That was that. All right, well, you know, cool. It was fun, but I guess that's how it worked out, you know? And uh, 12 hours went by, no contact from the team, no videos. We're, you know, we're staying at the hotel. Uh, next day, it's been 24 hours, nothing. At about 36 hours, we see six videos that they shot. They shot them, they assembled them, they uploaded them all by themselves. Mm-hmm. And we were like, it's on. We're like, okay, mm-hmm. it's, you know, now this is a thing. Yeah. And, uh, and it started going from there. Mm-hmm. And then, so yeah, so then we were trying to raise money to go back and to figure out what else we could do. Yeah. And in the summer of uh, 2011, so in ju- July... What three about three months later, three four months later, I went back and I went by myself. We didn't have the funding really to support you know another person going with us, and it was just you know yeah. So I brought some more cameras and uh, I went to the west because I yeah. really wanted to get to 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 western Libya and and I sort of found some connections for how to get to Zintan and found some guys who were doing some work there on Twitter and yeah. via Facebook and um, finally bought a ticket, went to Tunisia. Um, there, the guy's cousins picked me up at the airport, hmm. and then they, you know, his brother showed up like later that day, 
and he and I got together on a, on a train, and we took a train from Tunis to uh, Girgao in southern Tunisia. Mm-hmm. And uh, Moad came to meet us. He picked us up at the train station. And that was the point when his brother totally flipped out. And about a half an hour later, his, his brother went back to the train station, and I never heard any more from him. And so Moad and I, luckily it was fine because like Moad was the guy that I knew sort of via the internet. Um, so, but, but the goal with getting back to Libya and this time in the West was was also to train people. Train more yeah, journalists. Yeah, yeah, in a different region. Get more stories. Yeah. But this yeah. region is crazy because this is more, for me, where the battles are taking place, where it's going to be hard to do anything, to get around, to maybe to eat, depending on how supplies are. Yep. You know this. Yep. <laughs> this makes you out to be a complete, uh, a brave, uh, uh, crazy person, yes? Um, yep. So, and there you, you go. Not yep. to Tripoli, that's not possible. Nope. But yes to... Zintan. And, uh, and later to Yifrin. But so from the border, there's these towns. Nalut and Jadu are the big towns. And the next one is Zintan. And Zintan was basically, that was where all the action was at the time. Or I mean, that was like... I should say that was the rear base, right? That was the place that was as close you could as you could get to where the action was without having to worry about your safety, right? Or it was like far enough back. They had internet. There was some level of stability. It's where all the like freelancers and other like war correspondents, foreign journalists were being based. Or if you were a little wealthier from a bigger company, like the CBS News guys were actually based in Jadu, which is just a little bit farther back. More supplies, better electricity, better internet. But, like, the real, like, frontline guys were there in Zintan. And I didn't really know what to expect, you know? I just, like, I wanted a contacts. I had contacts for the media center. I knew some guys that I needed to talk to. You know, there was Sammy. There was, uh, Moad was with me. Uh, and I knew we'd, we'd, we'd figure it out when we got there. Because that's how we do. Yeah. That's how we do. It always works. Yeah. You know, I think if you, if, I think if you are, if you're careful not to... Um, you have to have your your ass covered, right? right? You can't you can't be a drain on resources when you show up, right? Mm-hmm. You have to have some idea about how you're going to get in, how you're going to get out, if nothing happens, and if you don't if you don't find help. But I feel like if you go and you really trust the universe, and you but you do put some planning, you do think about it, right? Good things happen, yeah, and they work, you know, and, and generally they work out. Each person you meet, you're judging. I mean, as best you can, and and you, you're you're a traveled person, you're judging. If this person says it's safe, do I trust based on what I've seen? And yeah, and, yeah you're making judgments. Yeah, and so you know, we 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 got to the checkpoint outside Zintan, and they say, yeah, you you no, you gotta, you can't go in, <laughs> and we're like, well, but but we know this guy and this guy and this other guy, and they're like. Yeah, they're not answering their phone. I don't know if you know. And so we spent probably 45 minutes maybe uh, sitting in essentially a trailer on the side of the road, you know, with like a guy at a desk having tea and like smoking cigarettes. Who are these guys? Military? They're the... Rebel the, military. The like rebel militia. <laughs> okay, so every town has their yeah, militia. Yeah. And these towns are against Gaddafi. Yeah. 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 And the one town near the border called... Uh, Wazin, which is right near Nalut, it's a very small town. That town's completely empty, and because it was pro Gaddafi, and the story the rebels are telling us is like, well, we told them they could stay, and there's some like green flags flying, and you know we don't care, it's fine. They can fly their flags. They don't have any guns. They don't. They keep to themselves. Fine. 
But, you know, you you, you kind of tell that's not the whole story, right? Mm-hmm. And there was nobody in that town. Mm-hmm. It was empty, right? Yeah. And the thing that's interesting is that the f- closer you were to the Tunisian border, the more likely towns were to not be empty, right? Like, Nalut, plenty of people there, a lot going on. Jadu even was pretty well supplied. When you get to Zintan, it starts to get tighter. You start to see, okay, things are not, you know, yeah. they're a little harder. Uh, but so eventually we got a hold of some doctor or some guy that knew some guy who, you know, vouched for Moad. And he said, yeah, yeah, they're good. They can come in. Mm. So we drove to the uh, the media center. It was like often like the center of like activity. You know, it's like this sort of open, semi-open cultural revolutionary space, right? And in this case, it was actually a school. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't realize this until later because it was night. You know, it was probably midnight at this point when we got to Zintan. And uh, I didn't realize till the next day. But outside the school, there was this big pile of trash, which is like weird shapes and things. And when I got closer, I realized that they were like classical like school desks. No. Like they had literally just like emptied the entire like school of all the like Gaddafi like school education stuff. And it was just left there because like where else was it going to go? Yeah. Right. Hmm. And, um, and there's this weird uh, court. Actually, I'm thinking about it now. Like it's not really a basketball court, but it's like sort of like a basketball court. But it makes me think about that. Uh, co- All right. The Dutch sword of corkball. Yeah, we saw we today. About earlier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's kind of like that. But, in my, but, but, you know, again, it was like there was a pole and a hoop, but there wasn't one at the other end, but there was drawing on the, you know, it's like, yeah, well, we were like, what is this? Sport? We never figured it out. All right. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, no, I got to Zintan and I don't know. What do I tell you about Zintan? <laughs> They had six newspapers. This is this is That's, the newspaper thing, right? Yeah. So Zintan is where we found the media center. And Zintan, they now have six newspapers. Uh, new ones, sir. New ones. All six new revolutionary newspapers printing daily or every other day. Whatever stories they could get. You know, like very like, you know, proud. earnest, hardworking, proud guys. And how many editor-in-chiefs, editors-in-chief do you think they had for these six newspapers? Uh, six. One. And I was like, doing it wrong. I was yeah. like, come on, guys. How was that explained to you? Uh, it was never really explained, yeah. except like there was this one guy and everybody knew that like he was smart and he knew something about journalism for some reason. Right. So he was chosen to be like the mentor, the editor in chief to like, I kind of thought maybe that was true, but that also there was a part of it, which was that, um, that the... He was a lo- part of the local council there to, like, make sure that, like, things were represented properly and, the, like, nobody kind of, like, badmouthed the revolution. And, you know, at yeah. some point, at some point, I think it was before I got to Zintan, I heard a story from my guys in Benghazi that um, one of the NTC media guys, I, I think it was... National Transition Council. National Transition right. council. The people in charge now. People in charge. The revolutionaries in charge. Revolutionary government. I think it may have been uh, Mahmoud Shamam, but I'm not sure, had called this meeting of all these Lib- all the Libyan journalists in the East where they basically instated the revolutionary version of the three pillars of Libyan media. So Gaddafi had those sort of three pillars of Libyan media, which was like, cannot talk about politics, cannot talk about tribalism, and cannot... I, I don't remember the third one. Yeah. And so the, the, the NTCs three pillars was like cannot say good things about Gaddafi 
cannot talk about tribalism. Oh, and cannot talk about Islam. Yeah. Like, those things, we're not, we don't want to talk about those things. They're, they're scary things. Yeah. You know, you can't say bad things about the revolution or pro-Gaddafi things. Yeah. You can't talk about tribalism and you can't talk about Islam. This sort of illustrates what I think anybody could put together, which is if you're raised in one particular tradition, even if you don't like the leader, it's, yeah. it is what you were raised with. So you, you may replace it, but it'll look similar, right? Because that's what you know. Yeah. But so were you seeing a lot of examples of this where where this was different now, this was the revolution, but I mean you've mentioned the accepting and not accepting of media, you've yeah, mentioned the, well, the you rules. Know, way, back, way back in March when we were doing the training, first or second day of the training, we sent out our you know, our guys, our our, our men and women, our trainees to go like shoot a little bit of video and then we'd talk about it. And and the women were just like they were shooting interviewing some people Outside a barber shop, you know, two old men on the street. They went and talked to a barber shop and talked to people there and like some other like store. And this like, you know, Hilux speeds up. One of these like big trucks speeds up with a, you know, anti-aircraft gun welded to the back. And like six Shabab, you know, six like young dudes like jump out and are like, who are you? What are you doing? Where's your media badge? You can't film this. Give us your camera, blah, blah, blah. And it was like. This is not a, okay. It's like okay. I get the whole like you're scared about like spies and like you want to control like where like things are being observed on. But this is not a sensitive area. Mm-hmm. There was no other shabab like military rebel anything around. Mm-hmm. It was like two old men and like a guy running a barber shop. And it became and you know and it's oh and 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 what are you doing here? You shouldn't be out, women. You need it's not safe for you. Yeah. And so then you're like okay, so. It's not necessarily about the revolution. It's not necessarily about the risk. It's more about the the women thing and the like keeping public life like con- in control in a way, right? Yeah. And it's definitely, I mean, I don't know about Tripoli. I haven't been there yet. Yeah. But Benghazi, Zintan, definitely very conservative, you know, generally. Definitely yeah. very traditional societies still you know. and so that, that sort of sets up partially your return i mean i know there are a lot more adventures on on your on that particular trip uh including when you were in uh is it beniwali or what is it called the 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 other after zintan you were in this different no, uh, oh no okay but um it sets up the question of you know one year later or or nine months as, as it is um are you going to see a lot of these signs still, uh, maybe now more entrenched, or, or what are you yeah. going to see? Um, you still talk to people through Facebook, uh, for whatever it's worth. Um, what do you, I mean, this time around, heading back to Libya, you're going to do more trainings than you've probably done before. Yep. So some things you know you're going to be able to do. Uh, what are the biggest questions in your head about, about the country right now? Um, I'm wondering about how how controlled travel is going to be, you know, or am I going to be able to get around easily? Because right now we're planning to visit probably five cities, you know, all across the country, like down in, back in the mountains. Hopefully we'll go back to the mountains. We'll be in Tripoli for a couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to go to Misrata. I haven't been to Misrata yet. That was a big center of, of the war. A lot of like fighting happened there. Yeah. It's really bad. Um, and then we'll go down to Wadan, which is in the Sahara. And nobody really knows anything about Wadan. It's like one of the, it's maybe 10th biggest city or something. Mm. But it's one of these sort of like crossroads cities. If you look at it on the map, you see there's four main roads that all lead into Wadan. 
<laughs> it's just south of Sirt, which is another sort of like well-known town, right? It's Gaddafi's hometown, et cetera. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, and the question is like, are we going to be able to drive? Are we going to find a car that we can get? Well, Dan's six hours from Tripoli. Okay. But then can we find a car that we can keep going on to Benghazi? Mm-hmm. You know, which is probably another eight hours, eight to ten hours drive. Or will we have to go all the way back to Tripoli? And then we have to take a flight to Benghazi. You know, stuff like that, like, like little planning stuff. That's just, uh, How is it working I don't know. Right I'm going to be able now, to figure right? it out. Yeah. 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 It's going to take time. And like, I really wanted to go visit Kufra or Sebha, which are way in the south. But I don't think there's going to be, there's not going to be time. And like the, the logistics are going to be too hard to like sort that out mm. uh, at this point. You know, the, the timeline is such as it is. And what else? I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, like, will we be, will we see that there's certain towns you need to know somebody in order to get in? Like Misrata, there's a lot of talk that, it, you know, in, in Misrata, it's almost like you need a new, uh, a separate visa to go to Misrata because the like local council is very in control and are still sort of very worried, you know, okay. but then will we be allowed to like drive around the town mm-hmm. or will we, will there be just like a one road and we have to stop, we have to go back, you know? I'd really like to go to uh, Tawarga, which is a town south of Misrata that's, uh, you know, saw a lot of fighting and, and it's basically empty now. All of its residents have been exiled, have been enforced exile by the Misratans. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to go to Beni Walid, which saw some of the, the heaviest fighting at the end of the war. You know, I'd like to stop insert on the way. And, you know, the idea of this trip is to do three primary workshops, three bigger workshops about you know, election reporting, video production, video journalism, and produces like a, a, a public service announcements about, you know, about the elections, teaching okay. people about how they'll register to vote, where they'll vote, what is an election about, yeah. this kind of stuff. But then additionally, I really am hoping that we'll be able to travel enough that we can visit some of these other towns and get a larger plethora of voices than what are normally heard. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that that reminds anyone listening, including myself, that uh, this summer already there is an election uh, in, in Libya. I mean, how that's going to look and how it's going to work is, I'm, I'm sure, a big question. Um, curious to, as to what you'll see, even advertisement, what kind of campaigning. Hmm. Yeah, no, and just, I think it was just today, there was like even more negotiation and discussion about what the election law or policies will look like and where, you know, how is it all going to come together? And I'm not sure that people even know how to get registered yet. Right. And you're talking about the election is in two months. Yeah. Right? I'm not sure what campaigning looks like right now, you know? Guys, my friends in Zintan were telling me that they heard that in Tripoli, you can vote for individuals or for party lists. But in Zintan, they're only going to be allowed to vote for individuals. Mm. And then they're feeling like, didn't we do enough for the revolution? And why does Tripoli get something different? And we want this. And like, get, they're getting like all in a huff about this. And like, I understand why they'd be concerned about it. But number one, like, it's not even clear if that's actually true. Yeah. yeah but then number two, the other thing is like looking at how different communities still identify themselves mm. as separate and fragmentary, you know, as fragmented, not as like a, a, a unified political Libyan identity, yeah. right? They're still not sure. And, they're in, and one hopes that the election is going to change that. And the election will be the first step towards kind of rebuilding a, a unified, forward-moving Libya. Yeah. But it's, that's, a, that's a big... It's big shoes to fill, right? That's a tall order, as we say. Yeah. And yeah. 
I'm curious what you'll find. I'm also curious what 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 you'll produce, especially with the people that you meet and what they'll produce, uh, be it video or even, I mean, audio, anything. Anything would be of interest. Um, you know, then becomes that classic question, which will remain an open question about will the world be paying attention? Is the world paying sufficient attention? Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll leave that open uh, and not to be answered here, but I'm definitely curious to see the, the media that comes out of it. Um, as you go, especially for people listening, um, uh, as you're on the trip, where will a lot of your updates be? I mean, there's going to be your Twitter channel, so we can... Yeah. I called it a channel. I sound like an so, old man. <laughs> so on Twitter at Baghdad Brian. Baghdad Brian. I'll have a link, of course. Small World News blog. We'll, yeah. you know, we'll do sort of trip updates, project updates. Yeah. Hopefully, if we start producing content, we'll, we'll reactivate Alive, Alive in Libya, alive.in slash Libya. Yeah. Okay, so I'll provide links to those. And the nice part is, you know, as people follow our work uh, and my work, I can... Um, link them to updates as they come. Yeah, and, and you might want to think about linking to some of the old posts that we did when we were in the field. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. You know, um, either on Louis' blog or my personal blog or, or the Small World News stuff. Okay. All right. I'll end it here for now. There's a lot more to tell. We, we had a long talk about how meals worked in the field for the, for the rebel army, and, and you were there getting food as well. <laughs> I think we'll save that for another day. Um, and uh, and say until next time and wish you a, a good trip as well, Bri. And it's it's been very nice having you here. We didn't know you were going to be here. Um, and, and I'm glad that things look like now that they're going to work out. And, and in a way, you being here has worked out quite well as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we all wish you good luck. Thanks, Mark. I wish all of you and all of your viewers and listeners uh, good luck and happier, safer lives than what we're seeing in uh, some parts of the world these days. Yes. All right. Jiggers.